3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. God, it feels good to speak into a mic again. Good morning, Inez. Good morning. It does feel good to speak into a mic again. Uh, I just, I, I, this is the longest, two weeks is the longest that I've been away from 3CR since I started, no, wait, since we started coming back into the station. So, um, I hope everybody missed me a lot. I missed you a lot, anonymous listeners. Um, so we have, uh, as usual, a packed and um, very important show for us today. So um, do you want to jump into our rundown? Absolutely. So we will listen to a replay of Fong from Tuesday Breakfast, who sat down with Dr. Andrew Burge, lecturer in the discipline of geography and planning at the School of Social Sciences at Macquarie University, to talk about the history of APODs in so-called Australia and how they cause harm to people who are detained there. Macquarie University and the Caldor Centre of International Refugee Law have created a map of all the sites that have been used for detention across Australia over the past 20 years. Yeah, and I think that'll be a really interesting follow-up as well to um, to the discussion that we had about, um, you know, the United Nations uh, SPT visit because uh, the Subcommittee on the Prevention of Torture is obviously looking into places of detention that might not be typically understood as such. So outside of the carceral system, including, um, you know, residential disability facilities and that kind of thing. So I think it'll be really uh, a really important follow up. And if you want to listen back to those interviews with uh, the Human Rights Commissioner, Lorraine Finlay, and also the coordinator of the Australian OPCAT network, uh, Stephen Caruana, you can head to 3CR au forward slash Thursday dash breakfast where we have all of our old episodes podcasted. Um, so after that, we're going to be catching up with Annelise Afat from Incendium Radical Library and Press, who is joining us to talk about this Saturday zine fair at Catalyst Social Center in Coburg. And there is going to be an excellent lineup of stall holders and the fair is then going to be followed by a fundraiser gig for Indonesia-based Needle and Bitch, which is a narco-feminist collective. Um, and there's been a recently announced new stall that's going to be there for um, fundraising and honoring uh, the people that we lost at Club Q in Colorado Springs um, over the past weekend. And then we will be joined by George Kanjeri, who is a member of the Save the Preston Market Action Group, which started in mid-2021. And he lives in Reservoir with his partner and two daughters. He joins us today to speak about the recent updates to the Preston Market demolition and the Victorian Planning Authority and how they've taken over it. Yeah, and uh, also something really important to keep an eye on if you are heading to vote. Um, you know, think about that because I think on the Save Preston Market website they do have a, an assessment of, um, 
you know, who's been supportive of this kind of measure. And finally, we're going to be joined by Dr. Cherry Balosis, who's the poly of, uh, policy officer at Disability Advocacy New South Wales. And uh, Cherry's going to speak with us about their recently released report, Beggars Can't Be Choosers, The Impact of the Housing Crisis, which explores some of the structural disadvantages facing people with disability in regional, rural and remote areas of New South Wales when it comes to accessing appropriate, affordable and secure housing. So uh, stay tuned. Uh, massive show. And uh, we might head to a community service announcement before we jump back in with the headlines. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Did you miss 3CR's broadcast of the inaugural historic first Trans Pride March Melbourne on Sunday 13 November? Perhaps you want to break a binary and listen to it again. Well, either way, you can. It's now available for listening at 3cr.org.au, Trans Pride March Melbourne. Join in the historic occasion and support our trans and gender diverse communities here in Nam. 3CR Radical Radio, proudly supporting trans and gender diverse people as part of diversity in Nam. 3cr.org.au, Trans Pride March, Melbourne. And these are the news headlines for Thursday, the 24th of November on 3CR 855 AM. Uh, first of all, following years of pressure from activists over dangerous conditions, the WA government will has this week confirmed that air conditioning will be installed at Roburn Prison. Temperatures soared to more than 50 degrees in the prison last summer, with the conditions being likened to torture for the people locked up there, the majority of whom are First Nations. This announcement comes in the wake of months of sustained pressure, with the government coming under fire for their abject failure to respond to these harmful conditions. Human rights lawyers and First Nations advocates say the announcement is long overdue and highlights the extreme lack of voice and respect that First Nations people hold with the state government. The government has given an outer timeline of 2024 for the air conditioning to be installed, demonstrating continued failure to respond within an appropriate time frame and ahead of the forthcoming summer. Also in news headlines this week, a new survey reveals the age sector is close to collapse, with three quarters of the workforce saying they intend to leave within six months if they do not receive a more significant pay rise. The survey, undertaken by the Health Services Union, revealed that working conditions remain unbearable, with aged care workers saying they are not able to give patients appropriate levels of care and that they feel consistently undervalued. Aged care workers are paid as little as $22 per hour to care for patients with complex physical, emotional and cognitive conditions. Also in headlines, with a warning for First Nations listeners that this headline does contain mention of a First Nations person who has died. An inquest into the killing of a Gomorrah man at the hands of police has begun this week in New South Wales. Stanley Leonard Russell was shot and killed by police in his aunt's home in 2021, and the inquest has heard that the police responsible did not turn on body-worn cameras during the arrest and reportedly forced their way into the property. The inquest also heard that the death in custody of Mr. Russell's brother may have played a role in how he reacted when police showed up. 
and that Mr. Russell's substance dependence and mental health worsened after his brother's death in jail. The inquest will examine whether the police officers followed procedures and review the failures of current training for police in engaging with First Nations people experiencing mental illness and trauma. In other news, the activist Danny Lim, also known for being a local street agitator in Sydney, was arrested this week with footage emerging of Mr Lim being thrown headfirst into tarred floors by police during the arrest. Lawyers have reported that Mr Lim is in poor state and serious condition and skull damage has reportedly been diagnosed. Mr Lim was previously arrested in 2019 and was successful in shutting down the charges in court. Following the former arrest, the magistrate was highly critical of the behaviour of the police involved. And finally, in news headlines, the State of the Climate Report was released this week by the CSIRO and Bureau of Meteorology, predicting longer bushfire seasons and worsening extreme weather events. The report reveals that Australia's climate is warmed by 1.47 degrees Celsius, bringing the continent close to the 1.5 degree limit that the Paris Agreement hoped would never be breached. The report paints a catastrophic picture of the coming decades for Australia, with further increased temperatures and decreasing cool season rain, rising sea levels and intensified coral bleaching across the coastlines. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 24th of November. And lastly, I just wanted to bring attention to the atrociousness that is happening at the moment. Um, If you are in Melbourne and you have time to go to the Melbourne Magistrates Court to support uh, Mariki, uh, who is from the Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance, who helped organise the Black Lives Matter protest in 2020, which was hugely vital following the George Floyd unfortunate death. And knowing that no police officer has ever been held accountable for a black death in custody, and knowing that the court system is now being used to put people who have organised a a peaceful protest through the ringer. Um, If you are able to go to the Melbourne Magistrates Court, they would really love your support and they will be there all day. And I know that you can also follow by link. Yes, um, and so this will be beginning at 10 a.m. Melbourne time. And uh, there is a link available, I believe, via the Melbourne Magistrates Court. Um, But I will also post that link uh, where you can follow in my Twitter handle where I post updates for the show. So that's at Priya Kunjan, P-R-I-Y-A-K-U-N-J-A-N. And um, you'll be able to find the link and more details there. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855am. Environmental Film Festival Australia invites you to EFA Presents Sovereign Cinema, a one-day cinema event celebrating Indigenous perspectives on climate, ecology, culture and custodianship. EFA Presents Sovereign Cinema includes two shorts packages and a main feature, all sharing unique stories which reveal the resilience of Indigenous people and the importance of protecting ancestral connections to country. Join us at ACME on Saturday the 10th of December for our first in-person screening since 2019. Tickets and passes on sale now at effa.org.au. The Environmental Film Festival Australia is a 3CR supporter.
And now we'll be hearing a replay from Fung from Tuesday Breakfast, who sat down with Dr. Andrew Burridge, who's a lecturer in the discipline of geography and planning at the School of Sciences at Macquarie University, to talk about the alternative places of detention in so-called Australia and how they cause harm to people that have been detained there. Welcome to 3CR, Andrew. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure to speak, even if I am no longer a resident in Melbourne. It's nice to be back on Melbourne Radio. So the 2nd of December 2022 will mark 20 years of the use of alternative places of detention or APODs. Can you tell us more about what APODs are and what their purpose was originally? Yes, yeah, certainly. So many of us are aware of Australia's immigration detention system, particularly over the last uh, decade or so, our uh, use of offshore detention. So Nauru and Manus Island, and of course, which is not Australian uh, territory, um, as well as Christmas Island. And uh, some of us will be aware of the long history and the present use of um, onshore immigration detention, such as Villawood in Sydney, uh, Mitre in Melbourne, uh, for example, or perhaps we can think about the older, uh, no longer used detention facilities in remote uh, desert locations such as Woomera. However, uh, over the last 20 years, um, Australia has used what is called alternative places of detention or APODs um, in varying levels of use and degrees of use, um, but mostly, almost entirely hidden from, from public awareness. And so we really need to understand the full scope of Australia's detention landscape, um, the facilities um, at its uh, at the use of the Australian government. And so when we take that uh, into consideration alongside purpose-built detention facilities, uh, we realise that there is a, a much wider network of facilities. APODs themselves uh, can really almost include anywhere. In particular, we think uh, of hotel rooms and uh, the recent uh, detention of Medivac transferees, uh, as well as uh, certain tennis players uh, drew attention to the use of hotels. Uh, however, hospitals, uh, psychiatric wards, um, elderly care homes, schools can all be classified um, as APODs, if, uh, particularly if you're needing other kinds of care um, or medical assistance, for example, um, that can't be provided um, in a, a typical detention facility. So if you spend a night in hospital and you are an immigration detainee, uh, then that hospital room becomes a, a place of detention. But the hotels are the more substantively used spaces and often used, as we've seen, uh, not just short-term, but quite long-term as well. I do want to talk a bit more about the, the findings that came out of the research for this particular project that you were involved in. But here in Victoria, I know that we saw that during the COVID lockdowns, people detained inside um, the hotels exposed a lot about how cruel and inhumane this type of detention is. Can you talk more about it? I think a lot of our listeners would already know, but yeah, what were some of the key things that came out of um, hotel detention especially? Sure. 
most of us think of hotels as a place of, of respite, you know, whether that's for holiday or work travel or visiting family. Um, but as we saw often uh, in discussions around hotel quarantine during the period of COVID uh, in the early part of the pandemic, we saw that a week or two weeks in a hotel room for most um, became uh, a form of, of torture, um, but for good reason of around health um, and, and concerns of, of the spread of the pandemic. For most detainees, uh, particularly the Medivac transferees over the last two years or so, uh, some of these, mostly men, uh, not entirely, but mostly, uh, were in hotel rooms uh, for roughly 23 hours a day, some for up to two years uh, or, or thereabouts. Um, so you can imagine the kind of uh, trauma that that would create being uh, held within um, more or less confined to a single room, but also that you are typically sharing that room with other detainees and you're under the watch 24-7 of, uh, of private security guards as well. Um, the only recreational space, particularly during COVID, uh, was within the hallways or the common rooms of, of the wing of the hotel or that particular floor um, if, if the whole hotel wasn't used. For example, the mantra, uh, in Preston, uh, used a, a floor of the hotel. Um, prior to COVID, uh, those who were held in the hotels uh, would be transferred to a detention facility to get outdoor exercise. Um, but this was also um, a quite obtrusive process. You will be patted down before leaving the hotel, patted down again when getting off the bus and so forth. And that was the only space where you would get outdoor exercise. So, of course, when COVID hit, those transfers stopped and uh, the men were contained entirely uh, to a hotel room. I should note that it's not just individual men and adult-aged men, previously families, unaccompanied minors, and still this is happening, um, but also individual women are, are held as well and were transferred through the Medivac. And uh, many to this day are still being held. Uh, the question is how many and where. Um, but just uh, a few weeks ago, um, a report found that uh, um, in one instance, uh, an individual woman is being held in Brisbane in, on um, the 43rd floor or, or somewhere of a, a major hotel uh, and has been uh, effectively in a form of solitary confinement in a hotel room. Other studies have shown um, that um, rates of self-harm and psychiatric uh, sort of uh, harm that is being created um, is worst in hotel and APOD settings. So um, on a scale of bad to worse, uh, hotels are worse than purpose-built detention facilities. And one thing that we're careful to um, point out with this research is that we're not promoting one form of detention being better than another, that people should be held anywhere, really, um, but that on a scale of, of severity, um, hotels are probably the worst. And this has been confirmed also by the Commonwealth Ombudsman and the Australian Human Rights Commissioner, two of the only bodies other than the UN, which was recently told they couldn't uh, observe these spaces on their recent visit, these are the two bodies in Australia that have access to these spaces. And over the last decade or so, the AHRC, Human Rights Commissioner, um, has reported repeatedly on hotels as being uh, 
overly or, or notably more punitive than uh, detention, purpose-built detention facilities. So this really suggests that these are, are, are carceral-like spaces, and that's what our research also argues. Uh, part of this research is looking um, comparatively at, globally at the use of hotels as well, such as the US, Canada, the UK, and really in each of these contexts, um, although Australia, as often is the case, are the most punitive in their approach to detention. Um, hotels operate like a prison cell, effectively. Yeah, I mean, you a lot of the things that you were describing before about people being patted down before and after they could get onto a bus and the types of conditions that they were being kept in in hotels very much sounds like prison. And I think it's important to expose what these conditions are because when we do think of hotels we think of like you said respite and it doesn't sound as severe um, but in actual fact in some cases or in a lot of cases it's more so. Absolutely and so often uh, detention facilities you know you have exercise yards you have some level of medical care on site um, various things that are built in. Now, again, not arguing that these are, are good spaces, um, but hotels are not purpose-built for long-term holding of people. And so um, they usually also are, are poorly maintained in term, or, or provisioned in terms of access to medical care, outdoor exercise space, fresh air, um, and so forth. Again, we heard this in quarantine. Yeah, the inability to open a window um, is, is really unpleasant. Um, and, and leads to an exacerbation usually of existing health uh, issues that many have, especially the Medivac transferees who were brought to the Australian mainland for medical care, which they then did not receive and was then further exacerbated by the environment in which they were, which they were held. So um, this really does become a very punitive space. So scholars from the School of Social Sciences at Macquarie University and at the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW have created a map containing information about um, all known current and previously used APOD hotel facilities across Australia. What was the process in gathering and sourcing this data? Yes, yeah, so this is a, an ongoing and necessarily unfinished project. It will remain that way due to the lack of knowledge and, and um, the often hidden nature of Australia's detention uh, systems, particularly of alternative places of detention. The reason behind our approach to try and map these sites is a recognition that this 20-year uh, this legacy of, of using these sites, there is no list effectively. And the Australian government, Home Affairs, has acknowledged that they don't possess such a list. Perhaps if they make the effort, they could piece this together. But it is quite difficult to understand where these places are, even when they do um, come into the media uh, or, or the public awareness. Um, we only know of a few. And a good example of this was the significant attention paid to the Mantra Hotel in Preston and then when uh, the men were transferred to the Park Hotel near um, uh, Melbourne University on Swanston Street. While there was so much attention and good attention from uh, refugee advocates and, and other groups, 
um, quietly a few kilometers away in Faulkner, a, a small Best Western uh, chain hotel was also uh, holding people. And it effectively, I think, received maybe one article in, in the newspaper, you know, effectively was unknown. And so if we're to sort of scale that up in a sense, we know that across Australia there are literally hundreds of sites in which we don't, uh, we know they exist in one sense, but we don't know where they are, how many people are held, how long for, uh, who is held, so is this children, is this adults, is it uh, families, um, and what kind of monitoring. We know that there are very limited monitoring capabilities of, of the existing bodies, um, and they certainly don't get to every hotel, and they certainly are not there every day. Uh, usually it's maybe every six months, so we'll look at a few. So um, this was part of the reasoning behind trying to piece this together. Given the lack of information and the kind of reluctance of the government to make this uh, information available, we've relied on freedom of information requests, uh, Senate estimates questions, um, info that has been released by uh, Home Affairs and elsewhere. Um, but ultimately, this is a game of trying to piece this, this together and knowing full well that we'll never get that full picture, most likely. So we're continuing to to do this. And with the map, we know it's incomplete, but we hope that we might then uh, gain uh, other insights, other people, uh, groups might see this map, might be able to provide other information that they're aware of. There is a concern with this mapping and making something visible that is previously more or less invisible. The intention is to give us this bigger, more complete picture of Australia's detention system, perhaps to allow more effective advocacy uh, for legal uh, support or for community support, um, ex-detainee support and so forth. But there is always the risk of making this visible or that this map could be used uh, in a differing perspective. And um, just this week, um, a map was produced by uh, the Daily Mail, which I usually re- refuse to to engage with or read, given its uh, racist intent, um, mapping the use of hotel detention, well, hotel accommodation in the UK. So the use of hotels for um, accommodating asylum seekers in the UK is not uh, closed detention. Um, so um, the public can come in and out of these spaces. There's no security. And so this actually has led to, in the past, right-wing anti-migrant neo-Nazi groups uh, going to these hotels and quite literally trying to kick in the doors, um, attacking people. Um, So we have to balance this and and question um, the ways that this information could be used to other purposes. The difference here is most of what we're mapping are sites that are no longer in use. These are historically used or are not currently uh, in use, um, or that are, uh, if they are in use, are um, closed to the public. There are security, as we know, with the mantra. In the Park Hotel, it was impossible to go inside, um, and for good reason in some extents, but but mostly um, this is because these are closed detention facilities. So 
we balance that risk uh, here, and this is still something we're thinking through and, and being very uh, sort of judicious and careful to understand is there any possible risk that could be created rather than support for those who are being detained. Um, I guess that leads to my next question, Andrew. You've mentioned this in your response just now, but just in a bit more detail, um, where to next with this map and this sort of sort of research? Sure. I think, um, importantly, while we're working with a number of different advocacy bodies um, to um, to com- uh, complete this work, a recognition that academic work is not going to change the world. Uh, this map is not going to abolish the detention system. Is not going to, uh, you know, lead to the release of, of detainees. Most of what happened in terms of the release of uh, the men held uh, through the Medivac uh, transfers in in the Park Hotel in Kangaroo Point in Brisbane, um, previously at the mansion, was through the advocacy of those men themselves um, and and others who were detained. And we really should. Um, acknowledge that. The hope with this work, though, is that it brings awareness to uh, and a, a more complete understanding of the detention system, and that this can be used by advocacy groups, by legal um, uh, supporters, and so forth, um, to better advocate, perhaps to bring better oversight, um, recognition that these sites are uh, poorly uh, observed, mostly hidden. So. When things are hidden, we don't know what's happening, what kinds uh, of mistreatment, potential torture, uh, and so forth. While I don't have uh, full confidence that a visit by the UN would lead to significant change either, the recent uh, decision by particularly the New South Wales and Queensland government to prevent access of of the UN's um, SPT um, that monitors around uh, concerns over torture in spaces of detention and incarceration, so prisons as well and so forth. Um, I think this points to the fact that this is uh, spaces that the government wishes to remain mostly out of sight and hidden. And so this is where the real concern of mistreatment of those who are detained um, falls. And particularly when we know Australia uses a form of indefinite detention in which it's not even clear how long you're going to be held in these spaces. So we hope this is a first step, that it brings a wider awareness to 20 years of effectively hidden uh, places of detention. Thank you so much, Dr Andrew Burridge, for such an interesting conversation today, looking into the history and the ongoing use of um, alternate places of detention. Certainly, always a pleasure to talk, and yes, certainly this is work that is ongoing, and and uh, we're always keen to to um, uh, gain feedback also about the usefulness and how we can better uh, focus our work as well. So thanks so much. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And that was Fung, who uh, sat down with Dr. Andrew Burridge, who's a lecturer in the Discipline of Geography and Planning at the School of Social Sciences at Macquarie University, to talk about the history of alternative places of detention in so-called Australia and how they cause harm to the people who are detained there. Macquarie University and the Calder Centre for International Refugee Law have created a map of all the sites that have been used for detention across Australia for the past 20 years. Now, I just want to remind our listeners that there is a free 3CR gig on Sunday the 27th of November 
have you got your ticket yet? Uh, this is at the Brunswick Ballroom, uh, and we're asking you to come join our radical community. 3CR Radio's Music Fest is one of several events produced as part of the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia's partnership with Creative Victoria's On the Road Again initiative, which connects Victorian community radio with the state's live music scene. So we've got a really exciting lineup, including Aja Kwai, Kucha Edwards, Lady Lash, The Black Jesus Experience, The Cherry Reds, Soju Gang, Marushti, Uncle Robbie Thorpe, and MC Shirley Hood. And uh, you can head to 3cr.org.au to find out more details about that. And you can also uh, look up 3CR on social media. So that's at 3CR on Twitter and at 3CR Melbourne on Instagram to find out more information about how to get your ticket. Now... We are joined by Annelies Afat from Incendium Radical Library and Press to join, to talk about this Saturday's zine fair at Catalyst Social Center in Coburg. And there's also going to be an excellent lineup there of stall holders and this fair is going to be followed by a fundraiser gig for Indonesia-based Needle and Bitch Anarcha Feminist Collective. Annelies, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, we can't quite hear you. Are you there? I am here. Oh, excellent. Yes, we can hear you now. Um, Thank you so much. Um, So, first of all, um, I'd really love to hear a bit about the Catalyst space itself, because it seems like it's really turning into this sort of hub for community work and solidarity building. So can you tell us about the importance of having this space and its potential for radical collective work that embeds commitments to things like disability justice and anti-carcerality? Yes, absolutely. Um, So... Catalyst Social Center is a new space in Coburg. Um, it's a radical community space that's organized by a federation of grassroots collectives. Um, and I just think having physical spaces um, where organizing um, radical community projects is possible, um, where there's alternatives, you know, um, such as radical libraries and field nights, talks, skill shares, those spaces are so important for movement building. Um, and for anyone who's really organising, and the commitment to, like you were saying, create disability justice and um, solidarity with people inside, um, I don't know, I think they kind of have to be integral to projects like this. Otherwise, we're kind of thinking about who is this space for, or mm. what does this mean for us as a community or for our organising, um, if spaces aren't accessible to for everyone that is wanting to, um, you know, to be involved in movement building or radical communities. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think something I've really appreciated is seeing things like accessibility information up front, considerations around things like childcare, around having food available for people. I think it's just... Um, it's turning into a really beautiful community space, and there's already been some excellent events held there. Um, so our friends on Tuesday Breakfast caught up with Emma from IRL earlier this week to talk about the zine fair that's going to be held this Saturday, the 26th of November, at Catalyst. And this is also going to include a fundraiser uh, following the zine fair for an Indonesia-based anarch- um Anarchist Feminist Collective, Needle and Bitch. Now, I know you've been involved in the publishing side of IRL, and I've spoken with you on Women on the Line about uh, None of Us Are Free Until All of Us Are Free, Poems from the Inside, Volume 2. And I was wondering if you maybe wanted to tell us a bit about what's going to be on offer at the fair, um, including stuff that's been announced since Tuesday, including the um, the Club Q Vigil Stall. Absolutely, Priya. Well, there's so much on... Um 
There's 24 stalls, um, and they range from land-backed stalls to um, stalls around gender and identity to stalls around time reduction. Um, I might highlight a few of the stalls that um, Tuesday Breakfast didn't get to um, exploring, but you mentioned um, the None of Us for Free and All of Us for Free project, um, and I'll be having a stall there that has some T-shirts and posters to raise funds for Book 3, which will hopefully be released uh, next year or early um, 2024. And as we talked about, you know, the None of Us for Free and All of Us for Free project um, is interested in how literature and art and other mediums of, um, you know, creativity can really create um, and promote compassion and build community alongside people inside prison. Um, we have the wonderful Sex Life Narrative Salon. He'll be joining us with a, a zine um, stall, and they are a collective of sex workers who write stories and poems and stories about their lives and their work. Um, and that project started during the COVID lockdown as a way to connect with each other. Uh, we also have been um, bookshop. Um, and Zine is an online and pop-up bookshop um, based in Nam, and it showcases Zines and small um, press and independent publications, both local and international. And I recently brought uh, Sick Magazine from there, which is a collection of writing by poor sick and disabled people. Mm-hmm. So really looking forward to, yes, the range of different storeholders and what's on offer. Yeah, definitely. And... I think, you know, it'll be a really beautiful space for, I don't know, um, I guess holding each other as a community for those of us that are uh, members of the LGBTQ plus community as well um, in the wake of, you know, the tragic, um, tragic incident that's happened in Colorado Springs over on Turtle Island. Um, and yeah, there's going to be a visual store there and hopefully people will be able to come together and, and build community and I guess find comfort in each other at, at, at the event as well, because I know this has really shaken a lot of people. That's right. And you know, it's only a small thing that we're doing. We're just having a table um, that will be a visual with candles and flowers if people would like to bring those. Um, but it really is an opportunity to come together and um, just have some time together um, to mourn the people that were killed um, through homophobic and transphobic violence um, and to take a stand against um, transphobia and homophobia as a community. Um, and I think at this time we need to really be developing, you know, alternative and multi-stories around our communities um, that work against the dominant um, stories and discourses that have been made around the world about, you know, LGBTQ people. Dehumanizing yeah. stories, yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, and I think it, it, this is something that's that's been emphasized by so many trans women and femmes um, that I know uh, that, you know, we can't just assume things are going to get better. This this needs active work, um, active work by all of us uh, to, to make sure that we're, we create a future where these kinds of horrible acts of violence are not possible. Um, and with that in mind, uh, the Zine Fair... Um, the poster does describe the event as as a space to learn through stories and create networks of solidarity. And I really like this organizing principle for the day. So I was wondering if you could speak to the role of zine creation and distribution as part of um, sharing wisdom and strengthening community connections. 
Yes, yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that. I really like that as an organizing principle as well. Um, I think that just the, I like having information that's accessible and radical ideas that, it, that are accessible is so important. And, you know, we know that in radical communities there is like a history of that coming through being because it's cheap and, it's, you know, easy, easily available to distribute. Um, and I know for myself, like I've learned so much um, so much from the words of people that are often on the margin, um, words that are often not generally valued or widely circulated. Um, and so you can find out so much about people's projects and collectives, people doing incredible movement building um, through, yeah, zine creation and distribution. Um, and I think, yeah, I'm excited to, every time I go to any sort of zine fair, I'm excited to read about what people um, have been doing in their collectives, in their lives, their struggles, um, and ways they're sort of connecting with each other and how I can connect with their projects as well um, and how we can kind of, yeah, build, I guess, this movement, um, build networks of solidarity together through things like things. Beautiful, and you've just given me the... Um, the idea of turning my horribly dense thesis into, or, or some ideas from that into a zine, because I think, yeah, um, I feel like a lot of stuff coming out of academia is definitely not geared towards uh, the communities, especially the communities that um, that, that work extracts from. Um, so I was also uh, wondering if you can tell us very briefly about the gig that's going to be on afterwards to raise money for Needle and Bitch and also where people can find out information about the zine fair. Yes. Um, so we have a show that is after the zine fair and it is a fundraiser for um, Needle and Bitch. Um, and Needle and Bitch are an anarcho-feminist collective that are based in Indonesia and they do work around sexual health. Um, so we have Blood of the Pomegranate playing, Super Cup playing, and Spores playing. Um, and the show will be starting at around 7 p.m. It's an early show, um, and it'll be $15. But no one is turned away. If you um, don't have any funds on you, that's completely fine. Um, we still want you to come and to, um, come to the show and, yeah, have a nice time, hopefully. Um, and we are, yeah, we are wanting people and we are wanting to encourage uh, people to wear masks um, and we will provide them at the door as well. But if you're wanting to find out anything about the Zine Fair or the shows, then you're welcome to go onto our website. Um, yes, we still have a website and it's irlinfoshop.org. Um, we also have uh, social media so on Instagram and Facebook as well. You can find out about all of the events. Excellent. And uh, what a website it is. It's a beautiful, beautiful website design. Um, thank you so much, Annelies, for joining us and um, and talking about this. Now, did you want to introduce uh, the song that you've chosen? Because I think we'll be able to play it, and I think it'll be, um, yeah, it's a really beautiful selection, um, you know, to honour the the lives and, and, you know, queer and trans joy um, in, in the face of such heartbreak um, on Trans Day of Remembrance. Oh, thank you, Priya. Yeah, I love um, Sarah Maresu, and the song is called Be Free. And, yeah, it is uh, the song, yeah, for and by trans people. And, yeah, let's mourn and also celebrate um, how, yeah, trans and gender diverse people in our lives. Beautiful. Thanks, Annelies. Thank you, Priya.
And that was Be Free by Amarasu, a beautiful, beautiful track, um, you know, honoring and holding, uh, you know, moments of freedom and joy and beauty for trans and gender diverse folks um, in the wake of that horrible, awful act of violence at Club Q. And, um, you know, we send all of our love and solidarity to everybody grieving at this time. Um, it's just an unconscionable, unconscionable act of violence, and we need to work towards um, creating a future where that is simply not possible anymore. And now we will be joined by George Kanjere, who is a member of the Save the Preston Market Action Group, which started in mid-2021. And he lives in Reservoir with his partner and two daughters. And he joins us today to speak about the recent updates to the Preston Market demolition. Thanks so much for joining us here today, George. No worries. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, well, I can't wait to 
you know, talk about such an iconic uh, venue that's been <laughs> the grounds of such turmoil for for quite some time now. But could we maybe start with why the Save the Preston Market Action Group started and what the market really means to the community? Yeah, well, the market start this version of the Save the Preston Market Action Group started mid-2021 in response to uh, these plans by the Victorian Planning Authority, which would allow 80% of the market to be demolished and 20% of the market to be retained. And the community was essentially just really upset about that because the market is such an important place. It's a, it's a sort of hub of the working class and multicultural uh, people in the north. It's been here for 50 years and it represents so much about our lives around here. And it's taken all that time to develop and the idea of knocking it down just so that a developer can make, um, you know, an extra, you know, few hundred million dollars is just completely outrageous. And, um, yeah, so we've gotten together to, to basically to fight against it. And so, yeah, that started halfway through last year and it's still going and it looks like it'll be going for a little while longer. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it sounds like, yeah, as you said, it's a hugely important cultural space um, and that it represents what the community actually wants. Funnily enough, though, the, as you said, the Victorian Planning Authority um, has, private, has taken over the planning process and plans to demolish 80% of it. Um, but they claim that the community is indifferent to the plans and also that these claims are based on a series of consultations that took place between 2018 and 2020. And one of the claims was that the market's specific location in the precinct was not a key concern for the majority of people. Um, I doubt that this is completely accurate, but could you please tell us about the community and the action group's response to these claims? Yeah, absolutely. I'm really glad. That's a fantastic question. So it's, it's actually a bit of a scandal. So last year when the Victorian Planning Authority was developing these um, these, these plans which involved demolition of 80% of the market, they under they, they sort of conducted a, a consultation process uh, which was really, really uh, leading and dodgy. It was, it was frankly a scam. And so they got members, the, particu- the, the consultation was several phases, but one particular phase was particularly egregious, and that was where they got a representative sort of slice of the community, or so they claimed, which did include community leaders, and they got them to ask them uh, into this sort of uh, series of consultations to ask them, what do you love about Preston Market? So they started asking, what do you love about Preston Market? Well, why is it so great? All these kind of things. Um, with the idea of getting these people to say what they loved about the market, it wasn't so that they could decide whether or not it was okay to demolish the market. It was so that they could then try and imbue the new so-called market which they intended to build to replace the old one to imbue it with these qualities but they didn't tell anyone that so the outcome of the consultation uh, so so the VPA claims was that the, the group of people came up with these principles about the market which they loved and that they were actually happy for the market to be demolished and then for another so-called market which we know will be much more like a shopping centre um, or a mall to be built elsewhere, and so they sort of um, tricked these people really. And the group involved, uh, you know, prominent community members like the president of the Darwin Ethnic Communities Council, um, uh, 
the president of the Darabin Appropriate Development Association, uh, people from the Darabin Ratepayers Group, a lot of representative groups, and they were all in, in the consultation saying, no, we don't want the market to be demolished. It sounds like it's going to be demolished. We don't want that. And the Victorian Planning Authority just simply turned their words on, this, on their head and produced this report, which literally says the opposite. And they've used the, the, the outcome of that report in every single uh, precinct structure plan since. And so they continually, uh, they, they continue, continuing to try and claim this. It's, it's, um, it's quite shocking to see, to see it happening like that. Um, that they've claimed to consult the community and really they, they already had their, their ideas before they claimed the, the, before they consulted and that really the consultation process was really just to extract a rubber stamp out of people. Yeah, absolutely. I can, I, I've, that was actually my next question is, it sounds like a lot of these consultation sessions were really tightly controlled and that there was a lot of persuasion in favor of the demolition. And one of the other things they said was that they, the community only wanted the essence of the market preserved, um, which sounds absurd because what is the essence of the market? Um, and I know you've touched on it a little bit, but could you tell us more about like what the insight, well, sorry, what the consultation process really feels like and like, you know, what, how, what are the outcomes of this? Because I know that they've been um, going against a lot of recommenda- recommendations. Yeah, well, so what would happen in the consultation process, so there were four, in the, for the community reference group phase of it, which is what I was talking about before, there were four sessions held, and in each session they would, you know, ostensibly be asking the participants what they thought. But actually... So in one of the early sessions, they brought in an architect who made a presentation, which the presentation was, what should we do about the future of the market? It can't really stay where it is because that's not optimal. So what about this and what about that? That kind of thing where it's just, uh, they're supposedly there to ask the community how they feel about the market and, and what they want to happen, but actually they're just straightforwardly feeding the community the information that they want to extract out of the session. Right. So they even had the, the CEO of the Victorian Planning Authority, Stuart Mosley, so a very high, high upstate bureaucrat, attend these meetings um, to, uh, to answer questions. And obviously the people were like, well, we don't want the market to be destroyed. You know, the market's very precious to us. And, and he, he told them, oh, but the structure of the building that the market's in isn't what's really important about the market. And we can do other things. And he, the, the CEO of the Victorian Planning Authority was involved in, in trying to direct the people away from uh, insisting that the market itself be safe. And even so, the people in the session still insisted right up to the last session where there was actually a huge argument about whether the market was going to be preserved where it is or not. Um, the people still, they knew what was going on and insisted and really fought hard in these sessions to, to put the community's uh, position forward. Um, but nonetheless, as you were saying, it was very tightly controlled and in the end they managed to more or less dismiss all of those concerns and then produce a report which um, was basically false. So what they did with, the, with most of their reports about the consultations actually is they do contain some truth about what people said in the body of the report in the summary of the report at the start, which is all most people are ever going to read, no one's going to go and read hundreds of pages of 
community consultation yeah. when there's a summary at the start of the um, start of the report. The summaries of the reports all say that everyone's like they all sound like people are just sort of like, oh, press the market, oh, don't worry about it, you know, do whatever you want, we're fine. Um, whereas the internal part of the report contradicts that quite a lot, and even that contradicts what actually happened even further. Yeah, wow, it sounds like such gross negligence. And I feel like even calling it confirmation bias doesn't do it <laughs> uh, no, doesn't do it justice because no. it's no. like you're not looking for the correct answers. You're persuading people to give it to them, and then not even including that in your report. And honestly, it's uh, it's pretty disgusting. It is, yeah. and, and knowing that the community uh, has rallied together and that the, there's an action group as well, um, but you shouldn't have to fight this hard um and especially when the community is giving the responses and you're just choosing to ignore it um yeah absolutely and i know there's also oh you go i'll just quickly add one thing i'll quickly add there just for context people is that what the difficulty with the market is that it's privately owned and it has been since it was built and so that's one of the arguments that the developers and company says oh it's privately owned so we you know we can do what we want with it essentially and what we're arguing is that um, you know, technically it's privately owned, but actually the market has, it's sort of become too big to fail in, in a sense. Like, it's too important to the community and too important to everyone who, who lives here that, that the fact that it's privately owned is, is a, is, is a reason to be able to demolish it. And that's why we're arguing for public acquisition of the market. We think the government should buy the market for the good of the community, the good of the local economy, good of local culture and everything like that. And, um, and preserve it that way. We think that's the best way forward. Absolutely. I think that would be really wonderful. Um, there's just like, like two other things I want to touch on. One is there's been some disputes between the Melbourne City Council and the Victorian Planning Authority, which is, um, you know, surprise, surprise, ignoring a lot of the rulings. Can you tell us a little bit briefly about what's been going on there? Sure. Um, I, I'm not across this, but my understanding is with the Arden's precinct structure plan in, in the city of Melbourne, the, the Victorian Planning Authority, sorry, the Minister, there was a dispute between the Victorian Planning Authority and the local council, Melbourne Council, about certain things to do with how this, uh, this urban renewal project was going to take place. That process was referred to what's called a standing advisory committee, which is supposedly an independent body, which is supposed to sort of uh, mediate between these sort of planning disputes and make a recommendation to the minister. That's the same process that Preston Market's undergone just now as well. We've gone to the Standing Advisory Committee hearing and they're going to make recommendations to the minister about what uh, he or she should do with the market. But what happened in Melbourne was that the Standing Advisory Committee ruled in favour of the, of the council that this urban renewal project has to be much more tightly controlled, more sustainable and things like that. And the Victorian Planning Authority just simply turned around and ignored the recommendations of the Standing Advisory Committee and went ahead to recommend to the Minister that they do, that, that the Minister does what they think anyway. And so it just brings into question this whole supposed process about how things are decided, you know, whether things are decided fairly and justly, whether there's much due process or not. Uh, if, if the minister, if the, sorry, the Victorian Planning Authority can just simply ignore what the Standing Advisory Committee says, and then the minister, in their turn, can just simply ignore what the Victorian Planning Authority says, it, it all just ends up pointing to when this is the case. The minister has complete power over development projects in Victoria. There is no sort of oversight. 
for the minister. They've got executive power. So um, even with the press-to-market situation, a lot of politicians are saying, oh, well, there's a process going on, so we can't really interfere. Where, whereas actually the decision just comes down to the minister. There's no sort of legal reason or any real reason why you're waiting for the outcome of all of these processes when you just make a decision anyway. So it's it's sort of a... The process itself is very flawed, and in the end it comes down to the minister anyway, so a lot of it just feels like beating about the bush when we want to get to the point. And that, the point is, is the market going to be saved or not? Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like, yeah, there definitely needs to be a call for a better process and better evaluation. Um, lastly, you know, there's a state election coming up. Um, how can we support Save the Preston Market and really try to uphold the community's wishes the best that we can? Yeah, well, we what we did was we uh, sent a election questionnaire to each candidate that we knew of a couple of months before the election. And it was a very detailed questionnaire, and it had questions about, you know, their understanding of what the situation is. Do they understand the level of power that the minister has to make the decision? What have they done in the past? What are they doing now? What are they going to do in the future to try and, you know, stand with the community and save the market and and so forth? And so we got all those results back, and we've published them on a scorecard, an election scorecard for Northcote. Uh, the sort of the district of Northcote, which includes a lot of Preston, and also the district of Pre- uh, Preston Reservoir, which in which the market sits. We've published that scorecard on our website, which is at uh, com. So you can go there and check out those cards. And so we're just encouraging, at this point, there's lots more to do, but since there's an election, we're just encouraging people to vote with the market in mind. So taking a look at our scorecard and letting that influence your vote. There are a couple of um, very good independent candidates and minor parties which have worked very hard to save the market and we encourage people to, you know, direct your first preferences in their direction. Um, And then following that, there's going to be a lot more to do. We're encouraging people to write to the minister directly, write to their local members, and next year we're probably going to have some direct action around the market because it looks like despite the huge amount of opposition to... The, the project, including now from um, the Greens and the Liberal Party, as well as minor parties and independents, um, the ALP is still insisting that they that they uh, they've still got the demolition of the market on the table, and they're not taking that off. So, um, yeah, we just encourage people to do that. And next year, we're going to have some direct action, probably because they are, they're still pushing forwards with those plans. Yeah, amazing. It sounds like there's lots of actions to be taken on all levels um but thank you so much for coming on the show today and taking the time out of your day to tell us more about save the preston market yeah it was a real pleasure and thanks for having me on and i encourage people to visit the website uh, check out our facebook page and yeah get involved absolutely we'll put that in the show notes as well but hope you have a beautiful day george you too thanks for having me thank you You've just heard from George Kanjeri, who is a member of the Save the Preston Market Action Group, which started in mid-2021, and he joins us to speak about the recent updates to the Preston Market demolition, as well as the Victorian Planning Authority that have taken over the process. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings, cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. 
Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 8.03 in the morning and we're going to play another track for you. This is a beautiful song that has been released this week called Forever 15. It's a song for Cassius Turvey, who was tragically killed in an act of um, horrible violence. And, you know, there were vigils held around the country uh, to honor his life and you know, to honor his wonderful spirit. He was such a caring, um, you know, community-minded, uh, much-loved young man. And it really comes through in this track, which um, came came about as a collaboration between the family and friends of Cassius Turvey and First Nations musicians across so-called Australia who rallied together to um, to bring... To bring this uh, musical tribute to, to Cassius together, and um, we're really honored to play it for you this morning on Thursday Breakfast. Like Cassie 
genius was given in that opportunity. The transient flumen was nothing but lunacy. No brother be better than human and me, and we hold the candle. So rep your soul brightly and let it lead an example. Better we can make it back to our families. Never be stanceled and bashed with fascist profanities. No attack for the black and our anatomy. Say, how can it be? Now Cassius on the banner and the brother boy stands saying, us kids matter. Forever 15, a beautiful tribute to Nungar boy Cassius Turvey, who was tragically killed in an act of horrible racial violence. Um, and this was a collaboration between, between his family and between First Nations artists around so-called Australia. I think just such an incredible musical tribute to such a strong spirit. Um, Cassius Turvey, you'll never be forgotten. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Join us for our second Incendium Radical Library and Collective IRL Zine Fair at Catalyst Social Centre this Saturday, gathering radical collectives, zine makers and libraries from across Nam, aimed at disrupting the settler colonial logic 
with works on abolition, decolonization, sex work, First Nations, disabled and diaspora communities, plus more. From 2 to 5 this Saturday and a fundraiser from 7pm with performances from Blood of a Pomegranate, Spores and Supertart. Follow us on Insta at IRL Infoshop, IRL Zine Fair this Saturday, November 26th at Catalyst Social Centre, 146 Sydney Road, Coburg. IRL, a 3CR supporter. Tune in to Rest is Survival, 3CR's International Day of People with Disability broadcast. On 3rd of December, 7am to 7pm, we're talking about the role of rest in the anti-capitalist revolution. With programming by multiply marginalised disabled people and disabled broadcasters from the 3CR community. Visit 3cr.org.au forward slash disability day 2022. Environmental Film Festival Australia invites you to EFA Presents Sovereign Cinema, a one-day cinema event celebrating Indigenous perspectives on climate, ecology, culture and custodianship. EFA Presents Sovereign Cinema includes two shorts packages and a main feature, all sharing unique stories which reveal the resilience of Indigenous people and the importance of protecting ancestral connections to country. Join us at ACME on Saturday the 10th of December for our first in-person screening since 2019. Tickets and passes on sale now at effa.org.au. The Environmental Film Festival Australia is a 3CR supporter. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we are joined now by Dr. Cherry Balosis. Policy Officer at Disability Advocacy New South Wales, who's speaking with us about their recently released report, Beggars Can't Be Choosers, The Impact of the Housing Crisis, which explores some of the structural disadvantages facing people with disability in regional, rural and remote areas of New South Wales when it comes to accessing housing. Cherry, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, of course. Uh, so maybe we'll begin um, by looking back a little bit. So the Disability Royal Commission heard evidence over August and September of this year from people with disability in New South Wales and Victoria who have experienced homelessness and housing insecurity. We've witnessed her sharing some devastating stories about the intersection between poverty, disability and housing concerns. So I was hoping that you could provide our listeners with a bit of context regarding the availability of affordable and accessible housing in Australia and particularly in New South Wales. Because housing security, I think we all understand, is a nationwide issue. And with the cost of living continuing to rise, I can only imagine that many people with disability are being forced into increasingly untenable living situations. Yeah, that's right. So prior to the housing crisis, there was already a shortage of affordable and accessible housing, um, particularly in regional rural areas. Um, there was it was relatively affordable to live in a regional rural area. However, with COVID, we saw an influx of city dwellers to regional and rural areas seeking a tree or sea change. And as you can imagine, these can be desirable uh, lifestyle areas to live in. So with COVID, we saw an influx of 
people moving from the city to these areas, which has contributed to a drastic increase in the values of property, which is driving up rent and decreasing the amount of rental stock. Uh, it's estimated that only 1% of the rental market is affordable for people on low incomes. And for people with disability, we need to consider that only a fraction of these properties, of these affordable properties, are accessible. So we spoke to one person in our research who's a wheelchair user. They live in Dubbo who described that they would look weekly at about 60 to 70 properties which would pop up on the rental websites. And she said that only four to five of these were accessible, but most of these were out of her price range because they were new built. So it's creating what one advocacy service described as desperate times where we're seeing people with disability who are anxious and fearful of insecure housing because they don't want to rock the boat and they don't want to have to enter this type of market, which is nearly impenetrable to find an affordable and accessible home. Uh, many people with disability are attempting to hold on to the properties that they live in, and in doing so, they don't want to rock the boat. Uh, they're reluctant to ask for maintenance or repair issues because they don't want to deal with the possible repercussions uh, which may follow with rental increases or worse sometimes evictions. Uh, so we're seeing also alongside this that people with disability are living in somewhat in inhabitable or horrendous conditions mm. uh, because they just don't want to have to enter this type of volatile and insecure environment. Yeah, I mean the last thing that you that you want to do as a as a renter if you're concerned about you know, the rising cost of living and the cost of, uh, you know, the cost that you're uh, spending on housing already um, is to risk losing that property, um, you know, by attempting to disrupt that massive power imbalance between renter and um, and landlord. And it's, it's just such a, um, you know, such a toxic dynamic across the country, but particularly for folks who, you know, need specific kinds of accessibility factors, um, you know, uh, fulfilled to be able to actually live safely um, in, in, the, in their homes. So um, you authored Disability Advocacy New South Wales recently released report Beggars Can't Be Choosers, and I understand this involved consulting with tenants, tenant advocacy and community services, and social housing providers around regional, rural and remote areas of New South Wales. So can you recap some of the key issues that emerged as part of this research? Yeah, so essentially there is a dire shortage of housing stock that's appropriate for people with disability, both in social housing and the private market. So as I mentioned earlier on, the private market is impenetrable in terms of affordability and uh, with the availability of accessible homes. We also have social housing, which is quite difficult to access as well. So on average, there is a 10-year wait uh, for a standard type of build, if you have a disability, an accessible home is up to 15 years. So that is a situation in terms of trying to find a home uh, that, again, is quite precarious in trying to find suitable accommodation, particularly if you know there is some time pressure in trying to find a place to live in. Um, alongside this, we also have the NDIS, uh, which has also somewhat changed the landscape where people are able to access SDA, so supported accommodation and supported, sorry, specialist accommodation for disability and supported dependent living. But it's quite difficult to access if you are not a participant 
and getting onto the scheme as well can be difficult as well. So all in all, there are often not many options if you require an accessible home, if you have a disability and you are you are experiencing financial hardship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like a whole lot of converging factors that really, I think, exacerbate housing insecurity for people with disability. Now, I know you touched on this earlier about some of those housing stressors faced by people with disability in regional, rural and remote areas because of these shifting demographics and the tree and sea changers. Um, but I was wondering if you wanted to elaborate on, on any of that, uh, the issues in shifting demographics because of the housing costs in larger towns and cities that then increase pressures in uh, regional areas. Because, you know, some of these issues are often neglected in mainstream discussions about housing insecurity. So I found that a really important part of the report. A lot of the housing discussion that we're seeing at the moment is about housing affordability for the general public, yet we don't often hear about how this is impacting on people with disability. There is no doubt that the housing crisis is far-reaching and it's affecting most of us. We're seeing increases in the cost of living, there's talk of electricity prices going up, uh, and this impacts on people's financial capacity to afford basic living, such as rent, food, electricity, etc. <clears throat> Pardon me. But what's often not discussed is how this is impacting our most vulnerable members of the community that were already experiencing disadvantage prior to the housing crisis. So housing insecurity is exacerbated by financial disadvantage. And what we know is that financial stress is associated with often living in a regional rural area and having a disability. It's what we call double disadvantage. So Disadvantage is experienced in relation to two factors where living with a disability impacts on people's potential to find employment due to uh, often discrimination or unsuitable work environments. And then this is further compounded if you live in a regional rural area as well where there are less employment opportunities or a lack of infrastructure to move about to get to employment as well. Um, so this impacts on the housing crisis and, as you pointed out, these converging issues, uh, which is also contributing to housing insecurity. So Mm. if we look at these layers of disadvantage, it further impacts on how the housing crisis can limit people's ability to find housing. So as I mentioned earlier, living in regional rural areas was somewhat more affordable than living in, in cities for people with disability. But with the increase of people working from home or hybrid models, people in higher incomes are able to now live in these areas, which is placing a demand and driving rent up. And it's pushing people out of these areas. And we're now seeing places that have been described somewhat as undesirable uh, becoming unaffordable. So places that were originally, I guess, described as you know a place that was quite cheap has now become unaffordable as well as well because people are just getting pushed out of areas, Mm. uh, which again impacts on the hardship that they're experiencing because this can further limit their potential to engage in meaningful activities such as employment. Yeah, and I mean, I I would assume as well that as people get pushed out of areas, um, you know, following where they're able to afford to rent, this also impacts people's ability to access important services and medical supports as well. Um, and I'm also thinking about the fact that um, 
you know, in terms of the assessment for the disability support pension and in terms of accessing the NDIS, there are quite strict criteria. And if people are not able to access that, it's not because they don't have a disability, but because of the sort of barriers to access, which then means that, you know, people might be on even lower incomes on the job seeker payment or, um, you know, might have a disability and not be able to access funding through the NDIS. And I just quickly wanted to touch on how things like access to the NDIS and funding allocations in participant plans and also the provision of appropriate support coordination relate to being able to um, secure appropriate housing, whether this is specialized disability accommodation or supported independent living. Yeah, so the introduction of the NDIS has changed the disability housing landscape with the move to individualised funding. So if you are an NDIS participant, you might be able to secure supported disability accommodation, so that's specifically modified or purpose-built homes for high-intensity needs or supported independent living, so that means on-site support for daily living services. Um, you might also be able to get home modifications, um, but as we mentioned earlier, on not everyone that has a disability can access the NDIS. Uh, there's approximately 4.4 million people with disability in Australia, um, and of that, only 500,000 are on the NDIS. So you know, that's a portion of people with disability that are able to access uh, the scheme. Um, I'm not saying everybody should access the scheme, but it certainly puts in, into context that SDA and SIL isn't for everybody. Mm. Um, to access the scheme, it can be difficult. So people firstly need to demonstrate that they have a permanent impairment where there is a requirement of evidence to demonstrate that they fit that criteria. So there's an administrative burden. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned earlier on, in regional and rural areas, this can be quite difficult to navigate in terms of trying to get evidence to demonstrate that you meet this criteria. Um, if there is a level of financial disadvantage in thin markets, it makes things even more difficult. So we spoke to people quite regularly who would talk about the difficulties they had in accessing an OT report that they needed to demonstrate that they could firstly access the NDIS and then demonstrate that they needed a certain level of housing. So once you're on the NDIS, uh, applying for still an SDA can also be challenging and this is where supported a support coordinator can be useful um, because when you, or when you are a participant applying for uh, these types of housing and demonstrating it can also be a difficult process on top of accessing the scheme mm. as well. Um, at the A, we've observed trends where the agency uh, may not level the funding level of support that their specialist has recommended. Mm -hmm. uh, so we often see people that might require, you know, a one-on-one -on -one, uh, supported living accommodation scenario, but they might be offered a ratio of three to one. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they have to share that work. So that getting the level of support can also be difficult. Yeah. Well. yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, it sounds like there are so many factors that sort of, um, you know, prohibit people from accessing the housing that they, they really need. Now, uh, in view of wrapping up just briefly, um, based on what we've discussed, what needs to change at the New South Wales state and federal government levels uh, to address these issues? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there are a number of things that can be done on both the state and federal level. Uh, 
I think looking at ways to increase affordable and accessible housing stock is one of the main focuses that could be useful, and this can be done in a number of ways. So on a state level, New South Wales uh, has not signed up to the minimum construction code of silver standards, and that just looks at the way it requires new builds to have accessibility requirements, so wider doorways, uh, looking at bathrooms so people can uh, move about in their bathrooms easier, so not having a hob in the shower, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, there are only two states in Australia that haven't signed up to those minimum construction codes, uh, and New South Wales is not one of them. So signing up to that construction code uh, would help mm-hmm. increase the availability of housing stock. Also abolishing no-grounds evictions mm-hmm. and capping rental increases. As I mentioned earlier on, people are quite fearful of rocking the boat because they don't want to see the potential consequences that speaking up might create. So at the moment, landlords are able to increase rents and it's uncapped here in New South mm-hmm. Wales. Uh, so they can increase it based on what the market value is. And as we know, the market value in some regional rural areas has increased rents by 30%. So yeah. We are seeing a correlation with that in terms of rental increases. I understand that some states have a cap at 5% in terms of how much they can increase their rent yearly. So that would ease the financial pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition to that, abolishing the no-grounds eviction. So, again, that's another factor that can contribute to that stress of not wanting to rock the boat or mm-hmm. not wanting to ask uh, for repairs because at the moment landlords can ask someone to leave uh, and provide no reason. Yeah. Um, on a federal level, uh, reviewing access to FDA and SIL, as I pointed out earlier on, uh, firstly, getting onto the scheme can be difficult, but then also applying for this type of accommodation can be difficult. I understand that this is a relatively new scheme and you know the NDIS is somewhat still in its infancy with it being introduced in 2016, 2017 to some areas around Australia. So, um, Sherry, I'm so sorry, but we will have to wrap up. I'll have oh, all no of um, links to the, uh, to the report in our show notes, but thank you so, so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. All right. Take care. And that was Dr. Cherry Balosis, Policy Officer at Disability Advocacy New South Wales, who spoke with us about their recently released report, Beggars Can't Be Choosers, The Impact of the Housing Crisis, which explores some of the structural disadvantages facing people with disability in regional, rural and remote areas of New South Wales when it comes to accessing appropriate, affordable and secure housing. That's all we've got time for today on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. For all the information about what we've discussed in today's show and to listen back to previous episodes, you can head to 3cr.org.au forward slash Thursday dash breakfast. We'll catch you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.